Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. You know, I heard a story some time back that really stuck in my memory, and I just have been thinking about it and thinking about it over and over again, because I think it's an analogy of the way many of us as Christians live. I heard about this man who went on his first cruise, and because he wasn't rich, he got ready for the cruise for a long time, for literally three or four years. He took one little part of each paycheck and kind of set it aside and saved it until he finally had enough to purchase a ticket. Well, a few days before he departed, he started to pack. And because he assumed that he could not afford that expensive food on that big ship, I'll be a captive audience there, and they're practicing price gouging, I'm sure, he literally prepared a week's worth of sandwiches and packed them in his luggage. And every day, he saw the passengers on the cruise uh, just enjoying these lavish buffets, all this sumptuous food and unbelievable desserts. But after seeing them, he would go back to his room and pull out one of the sandwiches and eat there alone in his cabin. Well, near the end of the cruise, he thought, you know, maybe, just maybe, I've got enough money to buy one meal, just one. And so he asked a waiter approximately how much one meal might cost. And the waiter, with a mix of surprise and confusion, said, sir, did you not know that the price of your ticket included all the meals? I mean, that's just the way cruises work. See, the price of all this food was included in your ticket. So once you buy the ticket, hey, it's all yours. Eat all you want. Now, again, I believe that is a pretty good analogy for the way some of us as Christians are living our lives. We know that we're Christians. We know our sins have been paid for at the cross by Jesus and that we're on our way to heaven, but we believe that we have to do everything in our own power. And when that happens, the Christian life becomes like drudgery. And we can easily slip into this mindset and start feeling, well, yeah, I'm pretty miserable here. I'm not doing very well. In fact, some days I'm barely hanging on. I'm barely coping. But I guess that's just the way of the Christian. I guess that's just the price I have to pay on my journey to heaven. Jesus didn't describe the Christian life as drudgery. Now, is there sacrifice? You bet. Is there challenge? You better know that. Is there commitment involved? Of course. But in Matthew 11, Jesus described his yoke as easy and his burden as light. And the Bible says that he came to give us life and give it more abundantly. So if you're a Christ follower today, here's a profound truth that I hope you will grasp. The blood of Jesus that paid your sin debt gave you the whole buffet. You got the whole deal. 
According to 2 Peter 1.3, he's given you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. So you don't need to be slinking back to your cabin and pulling out a sandwich, doing it in your own strength. The whole buffet is yours. And he's given you the Holy Spirit living his life through you. So you don't have to settle for barely getting by. The whole buffet of blessings, if you will, that you need to truly flourish in this life has been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the question. If we're being really honest today, are you enjoying all the benefits of that buffet? Are you living in the abundance of the life that Jesus purchased for you? In short, are you flourishing? The Bible makes an amazing statement in Psalm 92. If you have a copy of God's Word, you might want to find that right now. Psalm 92. I've been memorizing this chapter in Psalms. It's one I'd never spent much time in. I'd read through it multiple times, uh, but I'd never had really memorized it. And so I've been spending some days now memorizing this Psalm and it is incredible. I want you to focus Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15, and what it says. It says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Now, cedar of Lebanon, those were the cedars that were used to build the temple, all that ornate woodwork. Those are the cedars that, that Haggai talked about when he said, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, says the Lord. So this was the finest of the fine wood, and they grew tall and strong in the mountains of Lebanon. God says, my people are going to be like that. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. And I love verse 14 of Psalm 92. It says, they will stay fresh and green. It says that even in old age, they will still bear fruit. Staying fresh and green. Proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. Isn't that a provocative passage? I mean, I've just been feasting on this the last, actually, couple of weeks now, and I love verse 14 again, which says, they will still bear fruit in old age, they will stay fresh and green. That says to me that God wants people to flourish, and it's not just for the young. He actually wants us to keep on flourishing right on throughout our life. But that raises a question. If God is saying here that the righteous, and we could substitute in the new covenant, genuine, mature Christ followers for that, because we're under a new covenant now, so this is describing the person who's in a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, what does flourishing really mean? I mean, when I ask, are you flourishing today, how would you know if you are or not? 
Well, this whole idea of flourishing has obviously been around for a long time because the passage we just looked at was written way over 2,000 years ago. So trust me, flourishing has been around for a long time. But it's become a big deal in our culture over the last two decades. Dr. Martin Seligman, for instance, wrote a book back in 2011 that is entitled Flourish. And the subtitle is A Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being, 2011. And this took the world of positive psychology by storm. And since then, literally, and I do not exaggerate when I say this, literally, this is the hottest topic in the world of psychology today. Hundreds, hundreds of researchers have been studying what it means to flourish. What does that look like? It's become a part of our nomenclature, a part of our language. You have to be living in a cave, literally, not to have heard somebody in our world talk about flourishing these days. So Seligman, who's often referred to as the founding father of flourishing, he defines it as what makes life most worth living. He'll often use words in this book called like the good life. Flourishing is living the good life. And initially, when he wrote the book, he defines that as having deep and meaningful relationships. He defines it as finding deep fulfillment in our lives and having worthwhile tasks that we can give ourselves to. That's what he says in the book. But since then, as he's continued his research, Seligman, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, and again, is this icon. I mean, he's this giant in the world of positive psychology, respected by everyone in the field, I think. He came up with a model he called the PERMA model. I want to show it to you right now. PERMA is an acronym, and I want you to see right now why, what each of those letters stands for in the PERMA model. The P stands for positive emotions. James Brown saying, I feel good, da 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 You remember that? Do you feel good? That's what the positive emotions is all about. But it goes far beyond that. In Seligman's understanding, it involves an acceptance of the past, regardless of how bad it might have been, and it involves this positive anticipation of the future and what the future holds. That's what is meant by positive emotions. How are you doing with that? Have you dealt with your past? Are you anticipating positively the future? The E in PERMA stands for engagement. Here's what he says. Each of us wants to get engrossed in something. We want to kind of pour ourselves or get absorbed in something a hobby, work, an avocation, a project. Humans inexorably want to get engaged in things that they can pour their time, energy, and talents into, okay? That's engagement. Do you have stuff like that in your life? The R in PERMA stands for relationships. Now, this one we all understand, certainly. As humans, we want to feel love, loyalty, and mutual support, don't we? 
We need affection in our lives. We know that we want to know that people care for us and know us, that they have our backs, and we receive this emotional support from these family and friends, these relationships, and it helps us, especially when we hit hard times. So that's the R in PERMA. The M stands for meaning. Now, this one is a little tricky because this forces even secular people who don't even acknowledge God, it forces them to kind of get at, why do people want to live? I mean, I've actually asked people, this will shock some of you, I've actually asked people years ago in my office, I kind of stopped doing this because I was afraid that somebody might just take me up on it. I've said to people, why don't you just kill yourself? Not a real sensitive thing to say in a counseling situation. I say, now don't, no, don't misunderstand me. I pray to God you don't. I hope, please don't do that. But I'm trying to get at why do you want to live? What I'm really getting at is what is your meaning in life? And interestingly, that's what Seligman really says it is. It's why do you want to live? What are you living for? That's the meaning in your life. Have you ever wondered why popular people, wealthy people, uh, celebrities who have everything this world could possibly afford, lavish vacations, the adulation of millions, fame and fortune. Why do they take their lives? And the people who are studying flourishing are finding out that, well, it's not just material things that gives life meaning, is it? It's got to be something far more than that. And the A in PERMA stands for accomplishments. We all want to accomplish stuff. It gives us a sense of self-esteem. It gives us confidence that we're kind of worth something. And when we achieve, we want to achieve more and we want to become more than we are. So that is the PERMA model that Seligman came up with. Positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishments. How you doing with those? By that definition, if you're kind of scoring high on all those, you would be a person, by definition, that is flourishing. Now, I won't go on forever on this, but let me share one other little piece of research uh, that I found. Dr. Lynn Sutz, who's another acknowledged expert in the world of flourishing, says, It's not like you have the flourishing gene or you don't. Flourishing is not this trait or characteristic. It's not a static thing that you either have or you don't have. She says it is a process. And so it's something that has to continue to be worked toward. Now, folks, thank you for going through that with me. I could bore you all day long with definitions of flourishing. Trust me, I could throw a dozen up there on the screens for us to look at with all the reading I've been doing about this. But can we agree on one thing as Christ followers? Can we just kind of have a moment here? Let's agree on one thing. We're not just trying to live the good life. We're trying to live life the way God meant it to be lived. Amen? Can anybody kind of agree with me on that? 
Yeah, we like the good life. The good life is cool. We all want the good life. We ought to feel, ought to feel good with James Brown, and we want to all have those positive emotions and all that other stuff, but we're not just trying to live the good life here. We're trying, as Christ followers, to live the life the way God meant it to be lived, and that is a vital, vital distinction. So that's the goal of this whole series that I begin today. I want to explore with you for six weeks in a row what it looks like to be flourishing biblically. And there's the key word. Obviously, as people of the book, we're going to let the Bible guide our exploration here. And I'm going to keep on bringing in insights from all the research I've done. I'm going to keep on bringing things that the secular research is saying, and that's awesome. But we're going to let the Bible guide our definition of flourishing. And my goal, my goal is simply this, that at the end of these six weeks together, we would all, honestly, every one of us be flourishing a whole lot more robustly than we are today. Because I know one thing about you. I know one thing about you, the people of grace. Some of you are really, really flourishing. Praise be to the living God. And some of you aren't flourishing much at all yet. Honestly, you're on your way to heaven, but if we were being totally, brutally candid about it, you're just not flourishing much down here. Something has gone sideways with that. And the rest of us are somewhere in the middle, I suppose. But here's the goal, that God would raise all of us up to a higher place in this series. And folks, let me tell you, if anybody ought to have an inside track on flourishing, it ought to be God's people. And that's what we're going to learn. If anybody, people ought to be able to look at the community of faith at the church and say, wow, I may not agree with their message and their mission. I may not understand their prayers and their crazy songs, but I want to tell you this, those people know how to flourish. That ought to be what anybody, any onlooker would say as they look at us followers of Jesus Christ. So, flourishing is a huge theme in the Bible. I dare you to believe me on that. If you'd asked me two months ago, is it? I'd said, I don't think it's hardly mentioned. Wow, was I wrong. And I just felt this prompting from God. You know, we need to explore this together. It's such a big deal in our culture. We need to know what the Bible says about that. And to start with, he promises us eternal life. He promises us abundant life. That sure sounds like flourishing to me. And so I'm asking you to imagine what life could look like, the whole buffet of what God has provided through you, for you through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection and his indwelling Holy Spirit. The Bible I've concluded is lit you could literally say this is a guidebook for flourishing. So if you want to know how to flourish in your marriage, in your business, in your relationships, in your future, that's the book you want to go to right there. It's literally a manual for human flourishing. So with the minutes we have remaining, 
I want to talk about three super important aspects of biblical flourishing as we're just kind of setting the table here. Now, we're going to start next week with flourishing's dirty little secret, and I don't want you to miss that. It's going to be fun. We're going to talk about flourishing's dirty little secret. This is a dirty little secret that really frustrates things. We're going to get into that next week. But today, let's just set the table, and I want you to get three things that you can kind of nail down in your soul. Number one, first aspect of biblical flourishing is it's about both this life and the next. Are you hearing that? It's about both this life and that that's huge. And that's the part that is left out of every definition and every discussion of flourishing that I have heard or read so far. The popular cultural vision of flourishing focuses primarily on material prosperity right here and now. Biblical flourishing, by contrast, encompasses the whole enchilada. Oh, it mentions health. It mentions your own personal flourishing with your body. It mentions material things. But it also hits your soul, your emotions, your mind, your will. It talks about the spiritual dimension of you as a person. It focuses on both this life and the next. So let's explore that for just a moment here. You know, I grew up in a culture, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a culture that as long as you had your ticket punched to heaven, that's all you need to care about. Well, I kind of get that. I mean, Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. So I get it. Would you take your Bible for just a moment and find Proverbs chapter 3 with me? Let me see if I can find that here. Proverbs chapter 3. And I want to read a few verses here that should at least give us a clue that God's idea of flourishing is more than just being okay when you die, all right? That's all I'm saying. We know that's the most important thing. Hope we can all agree on that. But it's more than that. So I'm reading here from Proverbs 3, starting in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. You, by the way, ladies aren't left out of this. It's just that many, many, not all, many of the Proverbs were originally designed for teaching young men who are coming into adulthood what a wise life really looks like. For they will prolong your life, whoa, many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What will happen when you do that? Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Almost everyone knows these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And then it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. What will happen when you do that? This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Wow. 
Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, did you notice that that talks about a lot of the things that many of us care about deeply in this life, like health and prosperity and a prolonged life and many of the other things that we desire here on earth? This says that earthly flourishing is likely going to be ours if we follow these principles. But in this very same book of Proverbs, mind you, it says very clearly that it's not enough just to flourish here in this life. For instance, Proverbs eleven seven says, when a wicked man dies, wicked in Proverbs is interpreted as one who is not in a covenant relationship with God by faith, okay? When a wicked person dies, his hope perishes and all he expected from his power comes to nothing. I think you'd agree with me that ain't flourishing. In fact, if you want to go back to Psalm 92 for just a moment, this Psalm I've just kind of been living in for the last couple of weeks, it says here in Psalm 92, just before the verses we read earlier, it says, the senseless man does not know, fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. My name is Rex. I'm trying to help you, whoever you are. If you flourish like mad in this life, but you are forever destroyed, that ain't flourishing. Could we all just say that together to kind of ease the tension in the room right now? Because I know that causes a lot of tension. We're going to say together on three, that ain't flourishing real loud. Can we say that? One, two, three, that ain't flourishing. I hope you get it. I'm not trying to be cute about it. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. But like the Bible says, if you flourish like crazy in this world, but you are forever destroyed, that ain't flourishing. Jesus summarized it like this, and I'm sure we agree. You can't improve on Jesus and what he said. He said in Mark 8, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what? Can a man give an exchange for his soul? So you can have the wealth of Jeffrey Bezos. You can have the popularity of the hottest celebrity in Hollywood. You can have the fame and fortune of the Fortune 500 presidents and CEOs. But if you lose your soul, that ain't flourishing. That was temporary, ephemeral, fleeting, and you blew it, dude. That ain't flourishing. So we need to start right there. If we're being biblical people in this discussion about flourishing, it is about both this life and the next. I hope we're all really clear on that. The second thing I just want to nail down in this introductory message about biblical flourishing is that it brings a sense of deep soul satisfaction and fulfillment. 
Now, I found it quite interesting in my reading over and over again, the cultural commentators on flourishing talked about how fleeting it can be. That the satisfaction that comes with flourishing is an elusive thing. It can be here one season of your life and then gone the next. You can grasp it one minute and lose it the next. And so the researchers say that creates this lingering anxiety in people. You know why? Because they're afraid they're going to climb the ladder of success and find it leaning against the wrong wall. They're afraid that they just might get everything they want only to realize it's not really what they work so hard to get. I'll never forget, I sat with a man some years ago in my office who was incredibly successful. I'll not give you too many of the details. I certainly don't have his permission to share, so I'll be very vague. But he had just made a deal where he had made, netted after taxes, over $25 million. That's a lot of money in my book. I mean, this guy was just soaring. His life was cruising in his business world. But shortly after that great windfall, his family just kind of fell apart. And that's why he was coming to talk about that. And he said, there's so much strife and division. It is bitter. And you could see the anxiety on his face. You could see the grief as he had tried to live through this, and he just didn't know where to turn. He hadn't been giving God a lot of attention in his life. And I'll never forget sharing with him Proverbs 17, 1, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You can have it all in this world, but if it's not a deep, lasting, satisfying kind of thing, what good is it really? Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book, When All You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough, and it was a bestseller. And I'm convinced that book sold so well because it describes the experience of so many millions of people who've gone after what they wanted, they got it. It wasn't enough. So, Flourishing in the Bible is about both this life and the next, and it is a deep soul satisfaction that lasts. And third and finally, this is big now. This is big. There is no optimal flourishing without helping others flourish. That's a big one for the Bible. See, oh gosh, this is so different than what most of the world is saying about flourishing. In the world, it's all about me. But in the Bible, flourishing is not just about me getting in on the buffet. It's about me introducing the buffet to others. It's about me saying, look, I'm just a beggar at a banquet here. But hey, you too can get in on this. God is freely given to me. I want to freely share it with you, brother, sister. I want you to flourish too. So I wrote my own definition. Here it is. This is Rex's definition of flourishing, looking at dozens of others. Here it is. Progressively experiencing the full dimensions of God's favor and blessings in this life and the next and helping others do the same. And helping others do the same. That's the definition that I'll be using throughout the series, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. 
So it's not just about me. It's about you and me helping others get in on it. The biblical view is that we flourish when we help others. God said to his people who were in exile in Babylon, as recorded in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Listen to this now. Pray to the Lord for it, for others to flourish around you, in other words, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So I hope you're getting it. God's vision is expansive. It's for men and women, old and young, highly educated and illiterate. It's for people from every people, tribe, language, and nation, and culture. God wants us to share the wealth. And this is huge. Jesus himself is our model. Now, I'm kind of leaving you here today with a zinger, and I'm doing it intentionally because I want your mind just to go crazy right now with the implications of this. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, is our model for flourishing. Think of just some of the, I'm just going to tease you with this, and then I'm going to stop. Think of this. If Jesus is our model, it means you don't have to live a long life to be flourishing. He died at 33. It means you don't have to be wealthy in this world's goods to be flourishing. It means you don't have to be popular. It means you don't have to be married to be flourishing. Hello? It means you don't have to be approved by everyone. Jesus certainly, what he had enemies who tried to do him in. You don't have to be fully understood by everyone to be flourishing. Even Jesus' closest disciples apparently didn't fully understand his message and his mission. It means you don't have to have a set of completely faithful friends who never let you down to be flourishing. Jesus was stabbed in the back by some of the people who were the closest. It means you don't have to own a house to be flourishing. Are you with me? Just teasing with you. A few of the implications here. You don't have to drive a car. You don't have to wear designer clothes to be flourishing. You don't have to take lavish vacations. Jesus, as an adult, never traveled over 80 miles from his home. And he's the model of flourishing. Think of the implications of this. But don't miss the big point here. Jesus not only modeled flourishing, he brought flourishing to others. Wow. Blind Bartimaeus. The Gadarene demoniac. Whoa, you talk about flourishing. How about the woman at the well in Sychar and Samaria? How about his own disciples? How about Zacchaeus? Jesus brought flourishing into the lives of others. Now, at Grace Fellowship, our mission is to glorify God by making more and better disciples. We could just as easily say, our mission is to glorify God by leading people into a life of biblical flourishing. That's how critical this is to our mandate. So I'm gonna stop right there, but let me ask you one more time. Are you flourishing? Are you getting the whole buffet? of God's favor and blessings. Next week, we're going to pick up there and talk about flourishing's dirty little secret. I don't want you to miss that, but oh, what an exciting journey 
this is going to be. Father, thank you that you've called us to a life of biblical flourishing. It goes beyond anything that a person who's not in a vital, saving relationship with you could ever fully comprehend. We don't even understand it all ourselves. It's beyond us. So I pray that in these weeks, as we explore biblically what you designed flourishing to look like, that you would help us all to get in on the whole buffet and not trying to be living a life of drudgery where you don't want drudgery. Help us, Lord, to look to you, our source, for all that flourishing means. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.